0: One thing that's common among a lot of the people who listen to this show is that they tend to be very data-driven. But how could we all get better about thinking about the future of agriculture through a more data-driven lens?
1: We get very kind of recency focused and often we can learn a lot by looking a little further back over 20, 30, 40 years. I think that also can be instructive.
0: Dr. Aaron Smith is an ag economist who writes an email newsletter I really enjoy called Ag Data News. With each issue, he lays out the data that produces insights and perspectives that are always informative and sometimes unexpected.
1: At least in the context of, of soil carbon sequestration, I don't have much optimism. And when I hear climate-smart agriculture, that's typically what I'm thinking of. In the context of livestock emissions, I think I have more optimism there and I have to be less optimism about how much carbon we can store in the soil by incentivizing agricultural practices.
0: Aaron also is a leader in the AI Institute for Next Generation Food Systems, where he focuses on the socioeconomics and ethics of artificial intelligence in food and agriculture.
1: People always worry that when a technology comes and replaces some tasks that a human used to do, that humans will then have nothing to do. Uh, And that doesn't turn out to be true. Right now, we're at three point something record low unemployment in the United States, for example.
0: Dr. Aaron Smith on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, investors, and in today's case, researchers shaping the future of the ag industry. Another great episode for you here today. But before we dive right into that, I do want to take just a moment to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which this quarter is Calgary Economic Development. Now, what makes Calgary, Alberta, the engine for Canada's agriculture industry? Well, with direct access to a strong agricultural base, Calgary is a well-connected region with collaboration across geographic areas, industries and research and training institutions. Calgary has experts really in all things ag, including primary production, crop science, protein development, ag and food tech innovation and animal health, which stay tuned for the spotlight segment today on that it's also a hub for controlled environment agriculture energy transition opportunities and value-added food and beverage processing calgary is a hot spot for agri-food production and technology development which is why multinational agribusiness leaders call the city home and you'll hear from one of those if you stay tuned to the end of today's episode for our spotlight on Calgary based Alberta Veterinary Laboratories Solvet with their CEO Lionel Gibbs. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution and you are welcome to join. To do so, just visit calgaryagbusiness.com. You can learn more there. That's calgaryagbusiness.com. Thank you very much to Calgary for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right. Now back to today's episode with Dr. Aaron Smith, Aaron's newsletter, which I highly recommend, covers really a wide range of food and ag topics. So fittingly, we're going to cover several topics in today's episode as well. I've learned a lot from reading ag data news, and I appreciate Aaron's approach as a data driven teacher and communicator. And certainly part of my motivation for bringing Aaron on the show today was uh, somewhat selfish because this is an area, a skill set that. I am looking to improve for myself as well. And I guess that's only half joking that it's selfish because I do think this is an area very relevant to ag leaders, agribusiness leaders, ag tech leaders, farm leaders uh, who care about the future of agriculture and want to be sort of uh, leading the charge in the future. So I hope you find value from this. I know I really enjoyed talking to Aaron. Him and I discuss increasing the accessibility uh, of ag data for normal people like myself and you, uh, some basic research skills, his approach to ag data news, to writing it and coming up with the topics, uh, how the data has informed some of his thoughts on topics that range from biofuels to carbon sequestration to pineapple production and beyond. Uh, Some more about Aaron. He's the Deloach professor of Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of California, Davis, where he's been since 2001. Originally from New Zealand, he earned his Ph.D. in economics from the University of California, San Diego. His research addresses policy, trading and price dynamics in agricultural energy and financial markets. He's got over 50 publications in refereed journals, and he's been recognized with really a multitude of awards and achievements, which I won't list them all here, but it's impressive. Trust me. Uh, Aaron's also the cluster lead for socioeconomics and ethics at the AI Institute for Food Systems and a co-director of the Center for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence Research. I'll drop in the conversation here where he describes when and why he decided to start writing the Ag Data News newsletter. Enjoy today's interview with Dr. Aaron Smith.
1: It started in 2020, uh, so that it was not because of COVID. So I received some funding through this endowed chair that I have at UC Davis, which basically means that I have some funding I can use for research each year. And one of the things that I said that I would do when I took that opportunity was to work to increase uh, the availability of agricultural data to the public, to researchers, and and interpreting those data. And so, you know, part of that came out of just general frustration that. That there's a lot of data out there that exists. It's a lot of it's buried in the sort of the bowels of USDA website, really hard to find. And so part of my mission was to try to sort of bring a lot of that stuff to the surface and and to you know it's about to write things that would you know help people maybe understand a little bit more about agriculture and food. And so I started doing that with uh, the weekly blogs in May of 2020. Before that, I had been working with graduate students to put together a lot of the data resources that are on my website, where we're taking public data that exist, but putting them into a, a format where people can go to my website and, and look. So if you want to see, you know, what's happened to production of almonds over the last twenty years or production of corn over the last twenty years or the price of processed tomatoes over the last twenty years, you can you can go and you can look and you can see that there or if you want to actually analyze the numbers, uh, you, you can download those. And so the Ag Data News itself, I think, had uh, two objectives initially. One was to advertise the, the data resources, so to sort of use the data and put some things out there that uh, that people might find interesting. And I think the other was sort of as a medium for commenting on and engaging on various policy issues that are coming up. And I think also as uh, an employee in a public university, I think we do have an obligation to uh, to be able to provide and spread knowledge to uh, the population of California in general. So to the extent that, uh, you know, that I can help people understand a little bit about what's what, uh, uh, going on in our agriculture and food markets, I think that's helpful. So, so that was that. And then over time, the audience for the newsletter grew and it sort of outgrew the initial way that I was just managing myself, uh, the email list. And so that's when I moved it over to Substack because Substack handles all of the email distribution and everything. So people can just with one click sign up and then I can write the articles and with one click, they go out to all the people who are signed up. So,
0: yeah, no, that makes sense. And for someone like myself who wants to be a better data-driven storyteller, I've got a series of questions on this, but I'll try not to be too selfish on this episode. What tips would you have for others that want to get better at data-driven storytelling?
1: That's a tough question. I mean, I think the first challenge is knowing what data are out there. And often, you know, Google searches can be somewhat unsatisfying. I mean, who knows, maybe sort of new iterations of, of ChatGPT or something will be better at that. But, but it, it often can be difficult. You can Google something and say, you know, how much corn did the United States produce last year? And you'll get a bunch of websites that have a bunch of numbers and, and they're not really directing you to the primary data they're some person who was commenting on something and it may or may not be right and so so that's really hard i mean i think in the united states the usda is a major source uh, of data but you go to usda's website and there's there's a whole bunch of different agencies and and they're all doing different things and they all have different kinds of data sets one thing that we've done on, on my website is we have uh, a web app that's called where do i find it and so that's a living app that we're hoping to improve over time but people can go there and and type in you know here's the data that I want to try to find and hopefully we can help direct people to to where they are would be able to find the data that they're looking for so and certainly you know any uh, feedback that uh, anyone out there has if they come across uh, that site and they, it doesn't work for them or it does work for them I'm, I'm certainly happy to hear cuz we're we're always looking to improve these things to make them useful so availability of data is number one sort of knowing what's out there and that's hard and Beyond that, I mean, I try to step back, I think, and have a sort of a, a longer perspective. Sometimes, you know, especially if we're focused in the industry, we get very kind of recency focused. And so, what's happened over the last two years? And, and often we can learn a lot by looking a little further back. And so, to the extent that we can look back over 20, 30, 40 years, I think we can learn a lot from that. Uh, to the extent that we can look outside of our county or our state and see what's happening, uh, I think that also can be instructive in terms of trying to understand how how distinct or how special the particular thing is that we might be focused on.
0: Right. Well, I mean, for a lot of your posts, you can kind of see where the inspiration comes from, you know, egg prices, as an example of a recent post or, or the uh, Tulare Lake, uh, you know, as an example, due to the water situation in California, is it always a sort of like a headline or, or a news story or what about some of the other, the other topics that maybe aren't attached to something making national news? Where do you come up with the inspiration for those posts?
1: I'd say from a variety of places. I mean, there's particular policy issues that I'm following. So over a long period of time, I've, I've done research related to biofuels and uh, uh, transportation fuel programs in general. So there are federal programs that you know everybody's heard of the ethanol mandate that uh, requires use of, of ethanol in our, in our gasoline and other biofuels at, at the federal level uh state of California has its own program and and those affect agriculture directly both through demand for uh, feedstocks producing biofuels such as corn and and oil seeds, uh, soybeans and, and also more recently in California through biodigesters on on dairy farms, which are installed to capture methane and and also interact with these programs. and so so just ongoing policy issues in that area that's that's one topic that motivates um, some of these uh, posts and you know, sometimes it's just not so much news, but just something that's interesting. I mean, it's one example. A couple of years ago, I was down in the Central Valley visiting some, uh, some family and, and noticed a whole bunch of solar uh, farms, solar panels out in fields. And so, you know, what, what's the deal with that? How much of that is going on? What are the economics of that? And so that sort of led to some inspiration. So
0: it comes from a variety of places. That's really cool. What what have you noticed, or if anything has surprised you, about the feedback you receive on your, your regular ag data news posts?
1: I mean, I get a wide range of feedback, which is interesting, sort of ranging from the lay public, so somebody came across it and, and read it and, and has comments, uh, interview requests now from media who have, have seen what I've written, and, and I think often the interactions with media, I think... You know, media organizations are going to be tending to to look for a story that's going to engage their readers, and and often those stories are going to be surrounding some sort of big event or potential disaster that that's happening. And I think often I feel like my role in those contexts is to say, actually, those those floods are, are not really going to affect your prices in the grocery store very much at all. They might really affect that particular farmer whose field was flooded. But I feel like sort of just calm down is sometimes a message I have. You know, and then it's always surprising to look at the numbers of which posts get the most readership. And I think it's things that uh, that match Google searches that people might make. So uh, we took vacation in Hawaii a year or two ago. And you know, one question I have while I was there is what's the state of pineapple production in Hawaii? And you just kind of look at USDA data, And you don't see very much. And it's like, well, that seems weird. You know, I just went to this grocery store in in Maui and and they had Hawaiian pineapples there. But you know, I drive around the the island, I don't see very much. So what's going on? And so when I got back, I I looked into that and and tried to figure out how much pineapple production is happening in, in Hawaii and wrote a post about that. And and you know, the answer was still a pretty substantial amount. I mean, a lot of it was moved to other places with with lower cost production, particularly in Central America, but there's still a substantial amount of production in Hawaii. But But one thing that's important to to know about USDA data and particularly the sort of county level production data that comes from the uh, National Ag Statistics Service at USDA is that they're not going to produce data that's going to reveal the production or activities of an individual company. So if you have one company that dominates production, then what you will see when you look at a lot of USDA production data as you'll just see uh, a blank there, uh, because they, they can't report it, because they'd basically be reporting, you know, here's Dole's pineapple production. Or in California, carrots are an example of that. If you try to look at carrot production, you often won't be able to get very detailed information from USDA, because there's a couple of companies that produce a, a very high percentage of the carrots in, in the country. So, so that particular post, to come back to your original question, is still getting uh, a whole bunch of hits. And I think it's just because people ask that question maybe when they go on vacation to Hawaii, I don't know. So so that's been surprising. I think that there are some sort of offhand things that I wasn't really thinking seriously about and were not necessarily a sort of a serious post that uh, that continually get
0: engagement. That's really cool. And, and I mean, I know we're kind of, we're coming up with different examples on a similar theme, which is, we've got all this data that we're now collecting, but how do we make sure that people have access to it? You know, how do we give access to data from a high level on that in agriculture, how are we doing with data access and agriculture and kind of what are the what are the steps do you see generally to getting better at it?
1: Yeah. So so how are we doing? I think it it depends. In many ways, the United States has a lot of great data resources and thanks in large part to the USDA. I mean, there, there are other sources as well through various government agencies. But there is a lot of data that's available. So at the county level for lots of types of agricultural production that you can find that and it's freely available If even if it's not that hard to find. Going forward, I think agriculture itself is becoming more and more data dependent. And so, you know, one of the first things maybe that we saw would be sort of high-resolution prices, I think particularly for the, the sort of heavily traded commodities, so a lot of the big grains and oil seeds, uh, where there are very active futures markets, that farmers now can have an app where they can see data on uh, you know minute-to-minute minute or second-to-second second what's happening to prices and potentially respond to those. The next, I think, revolution in, in agriculture is, is through various types of precision technologies. And so we've had a period... I'd say over the last decade or so, where uh, a lot of farm equipment is collecting and producing massive amounts of data, in the sense that you know, if you've got a, a GPS guided tractor or, or or a combine, say, as a, a better example, then that combine is going to record, you know, for every square foot of your field, how much production, how much yield you got off that land, and so that data is getting produced. And I think the transition that we're in right now is is being able to take that data and actually Use it, and so those data tend to be tend to be private, and I think there's a lot of challenges around data privacy there. But so you know, maybe the large combine companies like Syngenta will have access to that. You know, particular researchers or others uh, may not have access to an individual farmer's uh, yield data that comes off the combine. But but just sort of taking those data, being able to access them, which is difficult because they're privately owned, and turn that into something that can then help improve productivity. I think, is the phase that we're in right now.
0: Is that a little frustrating as a researcher to not get access to data like that?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I love data, so more, more data are better. And, and certainly in academic contexts where sort of, you know, me, me, me as an economist, I want to try to understand at a more granular level what's happening within fields and the decisions farmers are making. I think for some of my colleagues who are in agricultural engineering or computer science who are looking to develop various AI tools, whether they're thinking about you know automated harvesting or robotic weeding or, or whatever their application is, some kind of precision uh, application of irrigation or fertilizer, looking to try to develop those tools, it's really hard to train their models if they don't have the data. So trying to come up with partnerships and, and to forge partnerships with farmers and, and farm groups is is a big challenge for academics looking to to work on those topics and, and develop those kinds of new tools.
0: Well, what questions are you asking yourself about kind of the future of agriculture? Yeah, so I think
1: environmental issues are a big challenge, and I include in that the changing climate, and I think that interacts a lot with technology. So if I, if I give a very short answer, I would say the future path of agricultural technology and the interaction of agriculture with the environment. And So on the environmental side, there are a lot of challenges with water quality around the world that's connected with agriculture whether that be runoff and leaching from excess fertilizer use or, or whether that be from animal agriculture and manure so those are big challenges methane emissions that come from livestock and to a lesser extent rice there's another way that agriculture is affecting the environment and then and going the other way as the climate warms there's going to be regions where agriculture becomes much more challenging and, and yields are affected and as i look at all of those things i see people of have worked hard in a lot of uh, areas to try to you know mitigate those damages and come up with policies but the big solution that i see for a lot of these uh, challenges is improvements in productivity the improvements in agricultural productivity that we've seen over the last 50 years have just been astounding you know we get five times as much corn per acre now as we used to get you know back in the 1950s and 60s and you can just look across multiple crops and you can see those massive increases in productivity and and that's important because as as the world gets richer people demand more and more food products and i think that particularly i think we've seen that in china over the last 10 years or so as as china has become richer the demand for eating meat goes up right meat is a very inefficient food product because uh, rather than humans eating the plants uh, what we do is we take the plants and we feed them to animals and so you have to use you know five or ten times as many plants to to feed that animal and build that up and then you eat the animal so you need a lot more agricultural production if you're going to be uh, getting protein from meat and so that's something that is happening is going to continue happening as societies around the world get richer and and so we need to be continuing to increase agricultural productivity along with that and so i I do see this next wave of precision agricultural technologies and and AI as being a potential source of that increased productivity. And I think we can potentially do it in a way, perhaps in contrast to the past, that is environmentally friendly. So, for example, you can have precision technologies that can apply fertilizer exactly at the time and the location where it's needed, so that you're not applying excess that might end up in waterways, or uh, you can reduce pesticide use because you've got a robot that's doing the weeding uh, in in a very precise way. And so, I think you know these technologies potentially can increase production and also potentially mitigate environmental damages.
0: Yeah, no, for sure, and. and um you know, we definitely have seen more interest in policy in recent years to fund efforts to that end for climate smart agriculture. And we're in a year where there's going to be a new farm bill policy wise. What are you seeing or what recommendations would you have for areas of focus that that might move the needle in this area?
1: Yeah. So climate smart agriculture is something that I've been starting to think uh, a lot more about in part motivated by this uh, attention from uh, various policymakers. I think also you see sort of in the private sector with various sort of carbon offset type markets that the private sector is also getting into climate smart agriculture. And so to step back a little bit, I grew up in in New Zealand and in the early 1980s, New Zealand economy was was struggling. The economy had been built as uh, an exporter, a major exporter of food and agricultural products, particularly to the UK. And then through the 1970s, there was a bunch of global macroeconomic turmoil. In addition, the UK pivoted much more towards Europe. And so along with that and and various other sort of problems in the New Zealand economy was struggling. And up until that point, basically, the government would pay farmers to own sheep. So, uh, you know, New Zealand had 25 sheep per person. and, And part of the reason for that was that the government heavily subsidized. They'd pay farmers for sheep. In the early 1980s, the economy was bad. And government's made a lot of economic reforms, one of which was just to say, we're taking away all support for agriculture. And everyone said, this is going to be a disaster. Uh, what are we going to do? if the, uh, We can't make money if the government will no longer pay us for sheep. And so you saw uh, a lot of worry. But turns out New Zealand agriculture has been fine. Uh, in fact, it's thrived since that time. And so I kind of come from this perspective that agriculture can thrive as its own business. And in fact, you know, if I talk to my, my dad about this, he's like, I, I much prefer a world where I'm Trying to figure out how I can market my products to the market, right rather than trying to maximize my returns from the government so coming now from from that perspective, what you tend to see in a lot of parts of the world, including the United States, is that uh, governments tend to support agriculture a lot and so when it comes to problems of pollution or say climate change, then rather than maybe be a government coming and saying you know your industry is increasing pollution and so you need to clean that up and you need to to pay for it and, and, and that's going to cost you something and maybe you'll pass those costs along to your, to your customers or your consumers. In agriculture, the way we tend to do things is to say, well, you know, maybe we can pay farmers or we can uh, subsidize farmers to take this action. And that's now the approach with climate smart agriculture. So we're starting to see a lot of emphasis on, on government payments for farmers to do more cover cropping, to do less tillage and potentially take other steps and other practices that might reduce or enable the soil to be able to sequester more, more carbon. So part of me looks at this and says, society wants to sort of give money to farmers. It's not obvious. That's the way that we really should do things. And I think agriculture can thrive without that. And beyond that, in this particular setting, as I've tried to learn more and more about Climate smart agriculture, and in particular about how much carbon can be stored in the soil. The main thing I've learned is that dirt is really complicated, that there's microbes that do stuff, and the amount of carbon that gets stored varies a lot from field to field or even within fields. You can potentially store carbon for a little while, maybe if you do some cover cropping, but then if you stop that practice and you till your field five years from now, then you lose all of those gains uh, potentially. And so I'm very pessimistic, I guess, about whether these government programs that are coming down the line and that are coming through the Farm Bill to incentivize things like cover cropping and no-till, for two examples, and other, other things to sort of make agriculture more climate smart. I guess I'm pessimistic about the actual amount of climate benefit that we're going to get from that, the actual amount of additional carbon that's likely to be stored in the soil. And I think this is more just sort of another maybe another mechanism to, to send uh, money towards agriculture. But I'm, I, I guess I'm pessimistic about the potential benefits. But, you know, it's, it's something that I'm interested in, in studying and working on and, and both in uh, in the context of California specifically and, and, and around the country. And, and you know, if I'm proved wrong, I'll be quite happy to be wrong about that. But I'm, uh, I'm approaching it with some skepticism.
0: Sure. Is there anything out there related to climate smart agriculture that gives you optimism? And if the answer is no, that's okay.
1: No, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't think so. at least at least in the context of, of soil carbon sequestration, I, I don't have much optimism. And when I think when I hear climate smart agriculture, that's typically what I'm thinking of. In the context of livestock emissions and livestock methane emissions, I think I have more optimism as I mentioned earlier, and whether you know some of that's from technological advances from you know feed additives and things like that or the potential for alternative technologies. So I think I have more optimism there, and I have maybe less optimism about how much uh, carbon we can we can store in the soil by incentivizing agricultural practices.
0: Okay, boy. Well, um, we could do a much much longer interview, but I, in the last ten minutes, I've asked of you here. I, I do want to shift gears and talk about artificial intelligence. It's been a topic in all circles, including agriculture, and including on this podcast lately. Uh, You recently wrote a post called, Are Robots Going to Steal Our Jobs? And I think that might be a good context to talk about the implications of artificial intelligence in agriculture on economics and on ethics.
1: Yes. So um, I am uh, involved in the Artificial Intelligence Institute for Next Generation Food Systems. And so what this is, is the National Science Foundation in the United States has set up about, uh, I think, 20 institutes at universities around the country for research into artificial intelligence. Uh, Several of these institutes focus on agriculture, including the one that I'm a part of, which is based here at UC Davis, but also includes researchers from Berkeley, uh, University of Illinois, and and Cornell. And so my role in the institute is to think about challenges related to economics and ethics. So that first question, the thing often people worry about and speculate about is is, will artificial intelligence steal all of our jobs? And if it does, it'll be the first technology that's ever done that. We look back in history uh, and we look at the tractor uh, or we look at uh, you know various kinds of automation and factories and, and, and all of the technology and labor saving technology that we've come up with uh, over the many decades. People always worry that when a technology comes and replaces some tasks that a human used to do, that humans will then have nothing to do. Uh, And that doesn't turn out to be true. I mean, right now we're at three point something record low unemployment in the United States, for example. So the long run view is that the work that humans do will change, that these technologies are just like computers. There are things that will augment. Uh, jobs and help people to, to be able to do their jobs better, and that people will be doing different jobs. And in agriculture, for example, we'll have fewer people in the fields, you know, hand harvesting or hand weeding crops, for example, and, and more of that will be done by by machines. And so so that, that very long run view is that uh, the tasks that humans do will be augmented by and changed by these technologies. Now, that statement glosses over the transition. And the effect on actual humans who currently are working in this industry or working in these jobs and so when we think about uh try to think about uh ethics and the economic effects of of these technologies the way that i think about it is we want to focus on who benefits from new technologies and who loses who are the winners and the losers and and how could we think about uh you know whether that's ethical and fair and, and what potential compensation we should make and you know as we've spent now Sort of two or three years working on it and thinking about this topic. You know, often when you say ethics, people mean different things, or it's uncertain what they mean, and and there are lots of potential ethical challenges that people have come up with and and thought about. Uh, especially, I think more recently, as as uh, the likes of ChatGPT and and these image generation tools have become really prominent just within the last year. But in the context of agriculture, the main thing that I think about is that question of. Uh, uh, who wins and who loses, and how should we think about uh, compensating those those who lose? And in, in a particular, you know, people who are currently employed in agriculture, particularly, I'm thinking of agricultural labor. Those are the people who are going to lose the jobs that they have. And so, how can we, as a society, figure out how to help those people to transition into different types of employment where they can thrive? You know, and I think that's the the way to think about it, rather than think about uh, sort of stopping the technology because that won't work.
0: Man, well, still a lot more we could dive into many of those topics discussed, but that's going to do it for today's interview with Dr. Aaron Smith. Thank you very much again, Aaron, for being on today's show. And I'm going to leave several links in the show notes from the episode today. Uh, Of course, a link where you can subscribe to Ag Data News, uh, also where you can access his Where Do I Find It tool that he mentioned for finding ag data, uh, the website for the AI Institute for Food Systems, and of course, his personal website as well. A lot of resources here on this one to follow. Up with, and I hope you do. Uh, but that's not all for today. We also have a spotlight segment. I'm pleased to be joined by one of the many Calgary based agricultural leaders, Solvet CEO Lionel Gibbs. Solvet specializes in meeting veterinary pharmaceutical needs of producers. They have a particular focus on pain management type medication for animals, but they do have a variety of products. Their close connection to customers and distribution across Canada also make them very unique in an industry often dominated by very few large corporations. And that has a lot to do with their roots. The company was started by Dr. Merle Olson and Dr. Barbara Olson, who are both still active with the company today. And that's where I'll let Lionel take the rest of the story from here.
2: Merle and Barb uh, are very, very well-educated people. Merle is a a DVM, so a veterinarian, and he's also a chemist. Uh, He's got a master's in electrochemistry. Barb is a world-renowned researcher, toxicology specialist. She's got a PhD, a master's degree, very well-educated people. They also have the Order of Alberta, they were in academia. So they worked at U of C for a number of years. And one of the things they did is, being world-renowned researchers, is they had access to so many ideas that never got to commercialization. And one of the things they thought is, gee whiz, like all these ideas and great things that we're researching, they need to be commercialized so that, you know, everybody can take advantage of it. And they decided, because they were basically focused on animal health and veterinary medicine and stuff like that, that they would start Albert Vet Lab Solvent in 2009 to bring some of these ideas actually to market so they're realized and that was the whole basis behind it and it developed into some very very unique products pain management products you know other things like that that nobody had thought of and then it kind of went from there so that was the initial evolution i think they started off you know thinking this company might be 1 or 2 million dollars while we're targeting to be by the end of our uh, fiscal, it's $30 million. So oh wow, it's, it's really jumped. Wow, and, and so what year was it that they went on their own? 2009. Interesting thing is it's a retirement project for them, so uh, very unique people. That is really cool. And of that revenue, how
0: much of that is, is companion animal versus uh, food animal or, or agricultural, I guess you could say?
2: I would say it would be about 85% what we would call food-producing animal or large animal, and the rest companion. The companion business we're expanding right now, you know, it's a big market. One of the things that we're kind of filling is a lot of the big pharma companies now are chasing, because they're globalized, they're chasing these very, very big products, uh, you know, billion-dollar blockbusters, and kind of discontinuing some of the the smaller ones, you know, the 2 to 3 to 5 million type nationally, which leaves a void because the vets still need those. We need those to produce, uh, you know, food, efficiently. So we're kind of picking up that slack. And in addition, you know, distributors are coming to us now because of our relationship to say, we only have one or two products. We don't want to manage an affiliate in Canada. Can you do it for us? So that's kind of our, our evolution there.
0: Yeah. You know, as far as the competitive landscape, you know, going up against some of these really large pharmaceutical companies, how do you differentiate yourself, I guess, is the, the crude version of that question.
2: That's a very good question. So, you know, we'll never be a Zoetis, which is a former offshoot from Pfizer. So Pfizer is probably a name that most people recognize. We'll never be that, that big, N- never. It's not what we, uh, what we aspire to do, and it's not our, our strategy. Our strategy is to, you know, bring out novel and solutions for veterinarians and innovation by request. So those big companies, as I mentioned, they're chasing the big molecules, and they do a really good job of that. We are here when a veterinarian comes and says, I have this problem and there's no product on the market to, to address that. Can you guys build us something or research something? That's kind of where, where we fit in as our niche. That's where Solvet was built from. On the flip side, a lot of these large companies do not want to distribute other pharma companies' products in Canada, which we fill that void. So we have our own innovation and, and research And then currently, we represent a couple of Irish companies. We represent some companies out of the US, uh, some Indian companies that have unique products or even generics that they want to bring into the Canadian market. We fill that void. So we differentiate ourselves there. And the other big differentiation that we're very, very proud of is we're Canadian. So, one of the things that, that COVID kind of exposed was the supply chain and the challenge with the supply chain. And, you know, being involved in large animal medicine food producing medicine you know producing food in canada if that ever happens again is very very important and having a canadian manufacturer that we can supply the industry to keep that food coming you know that that chain supply chain rolling is very very important and currently we i guess we would be the only canadian pharmaceutical company that is in canada on the animal health side that's canadian owned the rest of the companies are owned internationally either france german u.s ireland that kind of thing
0: yeah it sounds like a lot of your products really are you know directly tied to animal welfare which you know i believe all producers and veterinarians have have always cared about but also it seems like the consumer now is more and more interested in how they view animal welfare you know are you starting to see consumer interest in the area change the demand for certain products that you offer
2: you know that's a very good point it's 100 percent. so the big food companies you know the mcdonald's of the world the consumers are demanding that our animals that we're using in the food chain are treated in a humane and you know the ultimate welfare position and pain management disease management comfort all of that is at the top of the list and it needs to be and uh yes veterinarians have always been there producers have always been there and the public now is gaining more attention with the internet and all the things that are happening, the visibility that they have now, they're demanding that, which again, is a very good thing. Absolutely. Great. Well, Lionel,
0: I really appreciate this. Anything else we should make sure we, we share on, on a short segment about uh, what you're doing?
2: I guess the only thing I would share is you know, we are, we're looking at some expansion. We have some really good partners you know, with BDC, FCC, Bank of Nova Scotia that, you know, we're looking at expanding our facility here in Calgary to include a sterile injectable facility, which would make injectable antibiotics, any kind of injectable uh, product that goes into, you know, the animal intramuscular intravenously. It would be the only one of its kind in Western Canada. And I believe the second one in Canada uh, for animal health that there is, and that's going to be right here in Calgary. Calgary is a very good place to have a a facility like this. And and there's a number of reasons. One is we have access to very good and skilled labor. You know, obviously, when you build a facility like this, labor is very, very, very important. And in addition, when we look out our window, we get to see the mountains. So what else could you ask for? Uh, Why not build in Calgary?
0: Great. Well, with that, thank you very much to Lionel Gibbs of Solvet for being on the show. We'll also include a link to them in the show notes. And thank you to Calgary for supporting this quarter of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.